Last night during family worship, um, we were talking about uh, Easter and what does uh, this weekend of Christ's death and resurrection, and my kids, thankfully, knew all the answers about this weekend. And then I asked them a trick question, and I said, what does an Easter egg hunt have to do with Easter? And they said, nothing. It was awesome. Yeah, I'm very proud of them. (laughs) But we do because it's fun, but don't try to find any symbolism, but just enjoy it. It's a great time. Uh, This past week, um, my wife and I were in Kingston, Jamaica, and I just want to say that Right, you know, a few days before we arrived, Jay-Z and Beyonce were there. Just letting you know, they were filming a video, and my wife and I showed up, but we were not there to make a cameo in their video. We were there to go to uh, adoption court where we adopted our son, Daniel. I'm going to show you a picture of him. Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> He's already a Cubs fan. That's great. I don't know if he knows what the Cubs are, but we have been in the process, and I hope this encourages you, we have been in the process since 2011. It's like a seven-year process. So if you find yourself waiting on the Lord right now for him to come through, we feel you. We understand. Uh, He's not here yet, and the process is still ongoing. Uh, We've passed court. Now we're just waiting for a variety of immigration things to come through before he can arrive here. He's nine, and we are ready to welcome him. Well, I'm glad you're here this Resurrection Sunday, and I realize some of you are maybe unfamiliar with this death and resurrection of Jesus, or maybe Jesus, his death and resurrection is the foundation of your life. Either way, we're going to spend our whole time here in the Word of God, and I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, It'll be kind of complicated. Sometimes you may find yourself zoning out because there's a lot of details of this story, that I need to fill in for you to understand what's going on. But the story has to do with meaning. And every single person in here is a meaning maker. We're all meaning makers. When we think about our circumstances or relationships or the trials we're dealing with, we try to interpret the details and attach meaning to them. And for the most part, Our lives have meaning and the purpose and make sense. And if you're a follower of Jesus, his death and his resurrection uh, enable you to make sense of your life. But let's just go ahead and do this. A lot of times, you're not thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection to give meaning and purpose to your life. A lot of times, you're thinking about your next day, your problems, the stuff you're dealing with, and we forget Though we are meaning makers, we forget to attach the right meaning to what's going on because we forget his death and resurrection. But I want to show you a picture of what it looks like when you try to figure out life and make sense of life apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in order to do that, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story that happened in the city called Athens. And Athens was full of people who were trying to to create meaning apart from Jesus Christ. And there was this guy, and he showed up, and his name was the Apostle Paul, great leader that we learned about in the Bible. 
And he sees all these people trying to create meaning in their lives apart from Jesus. And he speaks into that. And that's the story that we're going to look at today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, look at the person next to you. It's Acts chapter 17. And we're simply going to look at the story today and go through it. Try to stay with me because I've got to have to explain a lot of stuff. So Acts 17. So let's do this. Let's start with verse 16. I'm going to just start going verse by verse here. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It's the Apostle Paul. He's on this missionary detour at the moment. And he's ended up in Athens where he is uh, waiting for Silas and Timothy. And as he's kind of hanging out in Athens, he's walking around and he is disturbed as the city was packed with idols. Now, if you want to know a little history about Athens, or maybe you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, With regard to Athens... It was in its prime around the 5th, 4th century B.C. It was like this intellectual or cultural center of Greece. And some would even say it eventually became the intellectual and cultural center of the world. Great intellectuals of the past lived there, such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, Epicurus and Zeno. And there is this skilled architecture in the temples and in the sculptures of pagan gods still draw people to this day. Anybody ever visited Athens? Anybody here? All right. Yeah, some of you have. However, in the first century AD, it was past its prime, but it was still a place of great learning and the sculptures and temples still remain. The Apostle Paul shows up, not impressed. He sees all the pretty artwork and he sees the pagan gods, but it just irritated him because to him it was pure idolatry. So what Paul sees is man's attempt to make sense out of life apart from God. So far, so good. Stay with me. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Familiar, right? He goes into the synagogues. He reasons with the Jews from the scriptures. They know the Old Testament scriptures. He would reason with them from the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus was the Messiah. However, when he would go out into the marketplace and interact with the pagans, they have no basis in understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would have a different approach in reasoning with the pagans. Watch what he does. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. (laughs) Paul shows up. He's preaching Jesus, crucifixion, and the resurrection, and the open air, and he's interacting with some philosophers. Now, right now, I'm going to tell you some philosophy stuff that you may or may not understand, but it's really simple. You see, there were these two rival groups of intellectuals, and they spent their time trying to make sense out of life. The first group was the Epicureans, and they followed the late Epicurus. Epicurus. 
who taught that life was all about enjoying pleasure. Life was about living in peace and tranquility and staying free from pain. And they didn't deny that the gods existed, but they taught that the gods were really uninvolved in the affairs of man. Their motto in life would basically be, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry about things like death or what the gods may or may not do to you while you're alive or after you're dead because the, the main point of life is for you to be happy. Now, some of you would not put God off to the side and, and live that way, but some of you believe that God's goal in life is to make you happy. And so if things are going wrong in your life right now, you probably think that God doesn't have anything to do with that because his goal for you is to be happy. And if that's the way that you view God, then you have no understanding what you're supposed to do when you feel pain, when hard times come, when trials come, because you have set up your life in a way that God's goal for me is to be happy in my circumstances no matter what. And I think about really close people in my life who say they believe in God. And they'll tell me, God just wants me happy no matter what and pursue my own happiness on my terms. That was the philosophy of the Epicureans here. But then you also had another rival group. If you, did you see it in the verse there, 18? He talked about the Stoic philosophers, all right? So the Stoic philosophers followed the late Zeno who taught that life was all about being self-sufficient and functioning with reason no matter what comes your way. Sure, there's a variety of gods out there, they would agree. But basically, you can figure out life on your own. And if they had a, a modern-day motto, it would come from the poem Invictus. And you may have heard before, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The idea is that I am in charge of my own life, and I can figure this out. I don't need God to make sense of my own life because I am a competent human being. I live on the North Shore. I got this. I go to Northwestern. I know what I'm doing. And my backup plan, if I can't figure out life, I will just Google it. The competent philosophers. I got this. So these rival philosophers hear Paul preaching the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. And if you notice there, they call him a babbler. It's a derogatory term. And the term could refer to birds picking up scraps of food. So they're saying, Paul, you just pick up scraps of learning here and there, and you're just kind of putting it all together. You're just a babbler advocating foreign gods. Now, this is not going to be interesting to you if you don't understand really what's going on. It's almost like you're, for those of you who are students, you're on campus, and you start talking to a couple people about Jesus and about his resurrection, and they start making fun of you. They start mocking you. And rather than leaving, they say, hey, why don't you come to our philosophy class so we can make fun of you even more? That's what's going on here. It's like at one of your family reunions. You're talking to your, your, your crazy uncle or whatever, and you're telling him about Jesus. He thinks you're crazy, but rather than dismissing you, he says, let's bring the whole family in here and mock you and make fun of you. 
That's what's going on here. They're going to bring Paul along and they're going to mock him and make fun of him in front of everybody. Look at verse 19. <laughs> and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So these philosophers bring him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And in the past, this would have been like an official court. But now it's, it's, it's not an official court. It's basically a place where the intellectuals of the city interact in over education, morals, and philosophy. And perhaps they had some jurisdiction they could bring Paul in and, and allow him to speak or put a, a, a stop to it. So they bring him in. And verse 20 tells us they bring him in to speak because Paul's talking about these strange things of Jesus and his resurrection. I'm sure he's telling them about Christ, how he's the one who died for our sins and, and rose again from the dead. And they're like, that is strange. And the author of Acts says something very funny at the end of verse 21. Did you see it there? said that these intellectuals would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's sarcasm. They spent their time doing a bunch of nothing and talking about a bunch of nothing. And here comes Paul, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul's like, hey, you guys are pretty religious. I've been walking around here. I see all these pagan temples and pagan altars and sculptures of pagan gods. In fact, you even have an altar that says to an unknown God. It's like they have their bases covered. You got plan A, then you got plan B God, and you got plan XYZ God. They have it all covered. And Paul uses this altar to an unknown God as a springboard to proclaim the true God. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's saying, hey, the true God that made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord. He is the master of ruler of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in these temples like you guys have. And he, he's not these little statues that you guys have set up. Because he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You ever thought about that? God does not need you. He does not need you to carry him from point A to point B like a man would carry an idol. He doesn't need you to feed him. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your company. I don't want to offend you or anything, but God did not create you because he was lonely. 
He doesn't need you to do him favors. It's great that you're here this morning to worship, but he doesn't need you to show up. In fact, he doesn't need you for anything. God is totally self-sufficient in himself and does not need you. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But the flip side is, you need him. All you practicing Stoic philosophers, you need God. You need him for your very life. You need him for your next breath. And even that one you just took, and then that one right there. Yeah, you need him for that. (laughs) That one too. You need him for your existence. In fact, he's holding you together right now. If God just, you would disintegrate, right? He's holding you together right now. You need him for the clothes you're wearing, for the food you're getting after church. You need him to know how you're supposed to live your life. You need him to go to heaven. You need him for everything. So what we're trying to get at is I want you to start making sense out of your life and start with this. God doesn't need you, but you desperately need him. God does not need you, but you desperately need him. Well, keep going. Paul's not done yet. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, these people in Athens, these philosophers thought that they were just kind of magical, that they somehow just sprung up from the soil of their homeland. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's crazy. (laughs) From one man, Adam, came all human beings, and they spread throughout the earth, and God determined where they would live, including you right now in Evanstead. You did not determine where you were going to be born, and you did not determine anything about your movements, though you think you have, God did. And then Paul starts flipping on some of their own poets and he converts their familiar words to fit with his biblical argument. Again in verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So it's in God that our very life comes and all our movement. We are his offspring created in his very image. God created humans, he gave them breath, and he determined when and where they should live for a purpose. And the purpose, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Some of these uh, Epicureans think that he's more like a distant God who is out of reach and doesn't care what we do. But look at that again, it says... He is not far from each one of you. Yeah, of course, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. But what the cool thing is about our Lord is we are told from the word of God, and it makes sense, is that God made you so that you would know him. God made you so that you would know him. Doesn't need you, but he created you to know him and have a relationship with him. This is the argument that Paul is making to people who have no familiarity with the gospel of Jesus. And he continues on. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You, sitting right there, were made in the image of God. And you're God's offspring, so you shouldn't think that God's like a statue. You're not a statue. He's not like silver. You're not silver. It's not like gold or something that man could craft. If God made you, then how can God be a statue? You don't make God. God is God. He is who he is. God is God. He is who he is. Just because in your imagination and my imagination we create God in our own image, how we like him to be, doesn't actually change who he is. You get that? Sometimes we can have this philosophy that God wants us to be happy and have a lot of fun. Uh, and we can call him the, the frat party God that you may have created. Sometimes you may say, you know, God brings no justice. There is no punishment for sin. And maybe in your mind you've created the no hell God. Or maybe you think, oh, God, he just wants me to get a good degree, get married, you know, have some kids, live in a decent house, drive a sweet car. You can call him the American dream God. You see how this works? We can keep creating God in our own image. We can make all these idols. But when you do that, it does not change who he actually is. You can make stuff up. You can have all these imaginations, but it does not change who he is. And so if you find yourself here this morning doing what I often do, creating God in my own image. I want you to understand what you're doing. When you're creating God in your own image, it is called idolatry. And idolatry is trying to make sense out of life on your own terms. Idolatry is trying to make sense of your life out of it on your own terms. But it never changes who God actually is. So if you're like me and you find yourself doing this, even as a believer, what are you supposed to do? Maybe you're not a follower of Christ right now. You clearly have created God in your own image. What are you supposed to do? Once again, look at the end of verse 30. It says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands all people everywhere to repent. What does repent mean? Well, repent means like you're going this way, you're doing your own thing on the gods you've created, the idols that you're following, and then you go, I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from these false idols, these false creations of God, and I am going to turn back. I'm going to turn toward Jesus. I'm going to turn away from this and turn toward Christ. I'm going to turn toward his death in my place for my idol-making self. I'm going to turn toward his resurrection. And by faith, I'm going to embrace him. I'm going to be forgiven. I'm going to be given grace. Do you see what this weekend's all about, the death and resurrection? You see, Jesus is God's solution to your God-making problem. Jesus is God's solution to your God-making problem. It's a problem we all have. And Jesus is the solution. We turn away from our false idols and we turn toward Christ. So I want you to keep making sense out of your life. Repentant faith brings you 
into a relationship with the true God. Repentant faith brings you into relationship with the true God. Verse 31. Now it gets a little scary. Verse 31. Paul says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Might not want to believe it, might not want to accept it, but God is going to judge the world with righteousness one day through Jesus. And God's standard of his judgment is complete perfection and holiness. You cannot do a God enough good works for God to let you into his presence. Jesus did the good works in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Unless you have complete holiness and righteousness, then you will be cast into hell. And the only way to make perfect in Christ is through repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, you may be sitting there and you go, come on, this stuff, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? Well, the argument that we would make and that we believe is that proof is that God raised Jesus from the dead. How do you know that God's going to judge us one day? Resurrection of Jesus. How do we know if the person and teaching of Jesus is legit, the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know that God accepted this sacrifice on the cross of the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know that God will not leave us or forsake us, the resurrection of Jesus? How do we really know that God is working everything for your good and his glory, the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know there really is this afterlife, there's this hell and this heaven, we keep on going back to the resurrection of Jesus? And how do we know that God not only loves you, but actually likes you too, right? The resurrection of Jesus. And we base everything on the resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection, I'm done. Tell my kids all the time, I am so done. I am quitting my job. I'm just done. I'm not going to read this. You take away the resurrection of Christ, we're done. The resurrection of Jesus all rooted in his death and resurrection for us. And you're thinking, man, Paul, that's a great sermon. Way to preach the word. I'm sure a lot of people are repenting and putting their faith in Christ and not so much. Verse 32. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So some of the people start to mock and make fun of Paul for his proclamation of the resurrection. Others wanted him to come back, and maybe they wanted to hear some more. But there were a few bright spots. A few bright spots. Verse 33 and 34, finish it up. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. A few repented and believed. The gospel penetrated only a few hearts, but most stayed in their bondage and idolatry, and they were without excuse, and they will soon face the judgment of Jesus. And then I look at you and I say, well, what about you? I know we're a positive people. We live in a very positive place. But I just want to tell you this. Most people don't repent. Most people don't believe. 
the road to hell is very wide, and that's where most people are headed. The road to heaven is very narrow, and only a few enter. You have the Apostle Paul preaching Christ. Very few respond. And you think, well, if Jesus was actually up here talking, you would respond. Go back and read the Gospels and see how responsive people were to Jesus. Not very. So I want you to take this time to examine your own heart and your life. Like, do you really believe in Christ? Do you really trust him and him alone for your salvation? Or are you just going through the motions of Easter morning? Here you are again. Maybe your family brought you. <laughs> Maybe this is just something you've always done. But you're still making God in your own image. You still have your own idols. But that doesn't change who he is. He's still God. He still wants to pursue you to come to him for who he is. He really sent his son Jesus for you because you cannot get to him without Christ. And his love for you is great. And he wants you to repent of destroying your own life and your own idol making and turn to receive true forgiveness. So think of it this way. God doesn't need you, but you desperately need him. God made you so that you would know him. And idolatry, so it's just trying to make sense out of your life on your own terms. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, is a solution to your God-making problem. And repent of faith brings you into relationship with the true God. So today, are you ready to swap out your idols for the true God? Are you ready to make sense out of your life on God's term? And it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that enables you to make sense. Repent and trust him today. Let's pray. Lord, we are only able to believe this wonderful good news by the power of your Spirit. And if there's anyone in here right now who really wants to believe, whether they've been in church their whole life or not, they just want to believe, and yet they feel a lot of doubt right now. They, just, they have doubts, they have struggles. I just ask that we would echo the prayer of the man in the Bible who said, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters in here who do believe that you would help through unbelief, that you would help my unbelief when we try to create gods in our own image. Forgive us for doing this, Lord, and enable us to trust you and you alone, for only you offer complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, and complete grace. And we praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus who enables us to make sense of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.